Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community, and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face-to-face. If not, on Zoom. We hope you will. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. Current lesson, am I doing it right? Today, uh, we're going to be asking the question, am I doing midlife right? Most importantly, today is going to be storytelling. And uh, as I've had two stories, I decided that I'm just going to do one this week. I'm going to do the next one next week, so story time. But as usual happens, we're going to uh, have a little context first before the story. And as I said in the email, if you are far too young to be thinking to yourself, midlife, can't even see midlife from here, that's all right. Uh, If you're way beyond midlife, also all right, the principles still apply. So if you say the word midlife, hold on just a second. It just seems a little echoey down here, Uh, Gene. Is there something you could... Gene loves to give me shit. Have you noticed? (laughs) So you say the word midlife, and there's another word that comes to mind, and that is the word crisis. We think those two things together, midlife crisis. It's such a common human experience that we've even got a title for it. Uh, So there comes a moment in our lives that we realize that life is impermanent comes a moment in our lives when the illusion of invincibility, the illusion of foreverness begins to crack. And when that happens, we take an assessment of our lives and we ask ourselves, what have we done? What have we become? And rarely do we ever say, ooh, yeah, this is what I was hoping for. Most of the time when we get to midlife, we've got some things that have been left undone, some hopes that have been left unfulfilled and so crisis now the crisis sometimes creeps up on people slowly often it's triggered by some kind of a hardship in the moment usually it comes with some discouragement or some remorse often it comes with anxiety maybe there's an impulse to recapture our youthfulness not uncommon that's if we're going to get a sports car that's when we'd go get it now here's why this lesson applies even if you are young Because that realization that life is impermanent, it just is. Life is impermanent. And youth just is. It is fleeting. Now the problem is, that's a very difficult thing to feel when we're young. It's easy to say. It's easy to agree with. We know the facts. Yes, life is impermanent. We know that. But the thing that evokes the crisis is the distinction between giving mental assent to a concept and beginning to have a felt experience. I was talking about this with Denise, and she said, yeah, it's a little bit like the difference between studying childbirth and having a baby. The two are fundamentally different experiences. So at some point, we begin to feel it. We begin to feel the impermanence of life. Maybe it's triggered by a gray hair, or maybe by laugh lines, or maybe it's triggered by a painful event or an intractable problem, and we feel it. And when it goes to that feeling place, (coughs) it sets off a series of psychological and emotional and spiritual processes which, cascading through our lives, can feel like a crisis. But those processes are, in fact, important. 
those psychological emotional processes are in fact essential for human growth. Now in our community, uh, every time the calendar turns to a new year, we do a lesson on this same ancient text. Teach us to number our days that we may gain hearts of wisdom. Now that stanza, it comes at the end of a longer poem prayer that begins with words that are often spoken at gravesides. Uh, the poem begins, it's in Psalm 90, begins, we are made of dust and to dust we return. It goes on and says, human life is like grass that grows up in a field. It springs up in the morning, but by the evening time it has withered. Life is fast. So maybe read the poem later. It insists that even with, but especially without, wisdom, there's also a lot of pain. There's also a lot of hardship to be had as we live these lives that we get on this earth. There's a lot of ugliness to be had. So it culminates in that, that couplet that we look at each year. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to live wisely. Because we don't get long in order to get this life thing figured out. So teach us. Now again, young person, this is non-intuitive when we are young. It was for me. I heard the words. I assented to the words. I agreed to the words. I thought, yes, that's really true. Boy, that's important even. But it's very difficult to feel this truth. And yet, it is true. And yet, it is kind of key to living well. An older person, I am sure you missed some wisdom along the way. And you might be having regrets and you might be thinking, well, it might be too late, but here's the thing. If you're not dead, there is yet wisdom to be gained. So these principles, they apply. So that's an important part. Hold that in your head. Life is impermanent. Oftentimes it is in midlife when we begin to realize it, we begin to feel it, and it is all an important part, a normal part, a healthy part of our growth and learning to number our days wisely. Hold that part in your head. And while you are, a second thought. It looks like the emergency phase of the pandemic is winding down. Pray that's true. We human beings, we have this profound capacity to adapt and to normalize in emergency situations. We have adapted, we have even normalized one million dead Americans, just shy of that. We have adapted, we've even normalized lives that have been fundamentally upended, altered, some parts of them permanently. We have normalized uh, how it is that we approach very different phases of community life, friendship life, family life, work and home. We have adapted, we have normalized. And that capacity to adapt, it's a gift. That capacity to normalize very different, very difficult circumstances, it is a gift. But it's an expensive gift. It costs us. We can and we do adapt in times of emergency. But in order to do that, we have to tap into deep reserves, which we cannot do forever. So we've got some tools onboard tools in our humanness. They are shift things around in order to manage resources tools. 
So what we innately do is we set aside some priorities in our lives to afford us the bandwidth that we need to adapt in times of emergency. Now, you probably recognize this in yourself, I do, that when we are in an emergency, we become highly attuned to the finish line. When is this thing going to be over? Because what we're doing when we're thinking about when is this thing going to be over is we're trying to figure out do we have enough resources to get from here to there? Can we get through the emergency to the other side? We have to be able to steward what we've got, figure out how to make it last until we get to the deadline. And then we can go back to the stuff that we've set aside. There's a lot of things that made this pandemic difficult. One of the things was it was very difficult to remember or to know when the finish line was. So if you can remember back to the fourth month or the fifth month, one of the things that was so difficult was, and I heard all the time was, I just don't know when it's going to be over. There's just this uncertainty. Well, part of that is the, uh, is the functioning of those innate tools that are managing our resources so that we can get from here to the finish line. And we couldn't do that. We couldn't do our innate management system. But now, as we have this emerging and shared sense that the end is near, and as we kind of take a collective breath together, all the stuff that we had to shuttle aside in order to get through a time of emergency, that stuff is now demanding attention for a whole lot of people. Now, that sounds like a very tidy process. Sounds like a very linear process. It sounds like, well, we did this, we set that aside, we moved this, now it's time, okay, let's do that. But when that stuff starts to come up, it doesn't really come up in a linear or a tidy fashion. We don't really realize that what we're doing is taking care of a backlog of things that we needed to shuttle aside while we uh, were processing something more pressing. Instead, it rather just feels like we are withdrawing or it feels like we are slightly depressed or really depressed, or it feels like anxiety, or it feels like malaise. It can feel like conflict, seemingly disconnected from the pandemic, but conflicts that arise. It can feel like less tolerance for irritation. It can feel like a grouchiness. It can feel like less zest for life, less desire to engage. What it doesn't feel like is the natural processing of a backlog of stuff that needs our attention. What it doesn't feel like is having to respond to the less attention and the less energy that we spent in the past processing friendships or processing relationships or processing our interior worlds, our feelings. But we did set aside those things so that we could adapt, so that we could keep going, and so that we could keep showing up at work, and we could keep uh, taking care of kids who were schooling at home, so that we could keep learning new ways to do new things in a new context to adapt. We did have to set aside stuff. And now, in the time of collective <sighs> catching our breath, that stuff, it did not go away. And on the news, that messy process of that stuff coming up, you're hearing it called an American mental, crisis, mental health crisis. But it's not just in America, it's across the world. This mental health crisis, it is that. That is what's going on right now. But maybe it can also be more. 
Maybe it can be that, but also more. Now, in our own community, we've not been immune. I've had lots of conversations this uh, last few months with people facing all that stuff, the withdrawal and the malaise and the conflicts, the short fuse, the anxiety, the lost zest. And we could stop with a story that says, post-pandemic mental health crisis. And we would be right, because that it is what it is. But potentially, it could also be more. We could have a different post-pandemic experience if we have a different framing narrative. Here's framing narrative one, number one. Stupid pandemic locks us into our houses, keeps us away from other people, keeps us from community, isolates us, worries us, kills a whole lot of us. Stupid pandemic leaving behind a pile of wreckage. Stupid pandemic. And again, that would be a true story. And there's plenty of data to support that story. But maybe it's not a big enough story. When we talk about things that are true, but just not true enough, we're talking about, but maybe there's more. And sure enough, our ancient wisdom suggests that there is a deeper story, a yes that, but also more story. I mentioned this idea a few lessons ago. Oh, sorry. No. That's the one. Was that up there all the time? Oh, yeah, that's, I'm going to talk about it now. <laughs> uh, the idea comes from Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upward. And if you haven't read this book, by the way, it's a great book. Uh, you had plenty of time to look at it. <laughs> In it, he tells a story of a prayer that he prays. I ask God for one good humiliation every day, he says. I ask God for one good humiliation every day. And then I make myself watch my reaction to that humiliation. I make myself watch my reaction to that humiliation. Now here's the thing about humiliation, it's painful. Uh, who among us likes humiliation? But what Rohr understood, and what our ancient wisdom also has understood, is that it is our difficulties, our challenges, our pain. It's one of the primary ways that we learn to number our days. It's one of the primary ways that we learn to gain hearts of wisdom. It's when we look at our reactions to our difficulties, when we look at the reactions that arise within us from our challenges, when we experience our pain and when we feel it deeply and then examine what we do in response. It's one of the primary ways we grow. <clears throat> now, we've been in this Am I doing it right lesson for a while now? Asking our questions, are we meditating right? Are we as self-aware as we think we are? Um, and what we've seen is a recurring theme is that we do, every one of us, tend to get trapped in our beliefs. We get trapped in our judgments. We get trapped in our stories. To survive way back when we're young, we create psychological and emotional frameworks, idealized versions of ourselves, coping approaches to other people, self-protective stories about how the world works. And what we've seen in this lesson, when something comes along to break those interior judgments and our beliefs, like meditation, like self-awareness, like the Enneagram, that is a very, very good thing because free of glass, thank God Almighty, free of those interior narratives. So what we could do to frame our post pandemic narrative is we could look at that ancient wisdom 
and frame our narrative within it as a context. Inside that ancient wisdom, we could see that our malaise and our grouchiness and our apathy and our lost zest and our anger, the consequences of unprocessed stuff, we could let that be our teacher teaching us to number our days. Now here's a pretty good assumption. For every human being, a pretty good assumption that some of whatever our ache is, some of whatever our irritation is, is caused by whatever the external thing is that we are blaming it on. That's true. Some of it is caused by that. But it's a better assumption that even more of our anxiety, even more of our withdrawal, even more of our lost zest is caused by judgments and beliefs and narratives that we carry in our heads. That is something on which ancient and contemporary wisdom agree. It is what happens to human beings. Our inner churning can both be the problem, but over time, our inner churning can also be the solution to the problem. So if we allow our internal affliction, our internal dissonance to drive internal inquiry, our afflictions can also be the solution to our affliction problem. Now, the reason we started with this whole midlife thing is because that is a common thing that happens among midlife people. Because all the other midlife stuff, it wears us down sufficiently that sometimes we are willing to consider the unconsiderable. We are willing to consider letting go of our most deeply ingrained beliefs, our most deeply ingrained judgments, our most deeply ingrained habit thinking. Because it turns out that is most often how that prayer gets answered. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to gain hearts of wisdom. Okay, that was the, con the context now the story. But before we get to the story, here are the questions we're going to be talking about afterwards. Um, <clears throat> now, I've heard what you're saying, that there's not been enough time in the discussions, so only two. You'll notice there's only two questions. So, there's uh, not an, it is not often that people get to midlife and say, ooh, this is exactly what I had hoped for. So we're going to look at it from the converse. So be thinking as the lesson goes along, uh, when did you experience something that did get you closer to what you hope for in life? And give some of the texture of that experience. Was it a painful experience? Was it a not painful experience? What was it? And bonus points if then you can ask the second question, which is what did I learn from it? What, uh, what did I gain from? What insights did I gain from the experience? So be thinking about your experience of what we're about to talk to during the lesson. So recently a man in our community was telling me about going through this post-pandemic inner tumult process. This isn't the story. But what he was telling me about was a messy process, and it was. Uh, there were difficult emotions, as there are. But what struck me as he was telling me his story was how little he understood the shared nature of his experience because he thought it was just him. 
he thought it was him and him alone. He actually used the word weirdo when he was talking about it because his, expect, his thought process was, it is me and me alone that is experiencing these ugly things. Now, <clears throat> him thinking that he had done something wrong, him thinking that he had taken some kind of a bad turn somewhere along the way and was to blame for all of these things, his instinct was to keep his pain hidden away, to not let it be known because weirdo. Well, that turned out to be most of what we talked about in that time we were together because nobody had ever told him this is what growth looks like. <laughs> this is what growth looks like. One of the things that is most transformative in the human experience, he had picked up along the way that that process was weirdo territory. But this is actually what growth looks like. So I told him some parts of my ugly story, my messy story. And then I assured him, because I've talked to a gazillion of you, yeah, it's not just you. <laughs> this is what growth looks like. It is messy. It's really untidy. And it is emotional. And it is psychologically difficult. And it is hard. And oftentimes it is ugly. And it is what growth looks like. So, two stories. I'm going to tell you the second one next week. Uh, they're both midlife crisis stories, and they're both stories about the messy, untidy thing that growth looks like. Now, next week, I'm going to tell you a story of a person who is actually in midlife, just turned 40, but today I'm going to tell you the story of an early bird. <laughs> a young man in our community, late 20s, maybe just turned 30, uh, too young for the label midlife but nonetheless worn down by the accumulation of trouble. And as you'll hear, unbeknownst to him, worn down by faulty narratives. As is usually the case in this story, it is super easy to focus the pain outward. And in this case, to point it at stupid, stupid boss. And if you were to hear the story, you would agree, stupid, stupid boss. <laughs> now, since this young man took over this startup that uh, he did three years ago, there's been over a 500% increase in productivity, in sales, in deliverables. And yet, his boss blows into town every month or two and yells and screams about really trivial stuff. What the boss does is make some snap assumptions, never questions his assumptions, just reacts to his assumptions. And the way that he tends to react to his assumption is with the yelling and the screaming because that's his go-to reaction anytime. And in the process, he comes into town and he paralyzes the team. He undercuts this young man's work and he keeps the team from being able to move forward, keeps the team from being able to work effectively. So when the boss then blows back from wherever he blew in from, our young man has to pick up the pieces and rebuild the team's morale, uh, process the conflict within each individual team member, but also between the team members because all that pressure tends to create a conflict, tends to create internal conflict. And in order to get the team back on track, get them back to working together and get them back to moving forward, it takes him a week sometimes more just to get back to where they were before, stupid boss. Now, he's talked to the boss, 
And it seems like when he's having these conversations, the boss gets it. But then the next month, same cycle. Here it goes all over again as if we'd not had the talk. So our young man is looking for a new job. (laughs) But he's also doing something else. Because a lot of the pain that he has had, a lot of the internal churning, it's been very, very difficult, is coming from within. And so he's also been looking there. Because again, remember what we said, that internal churning, it can be the solution as well as the problem if it drives self-inquiry. So he's been driving self-inquiry, precipitated by the troubles. He's had trouble sleeping. He's trouble with shoulder pain and back pain. He's found that small things have been making him overreactively angry. Uh, sometimes he has stabbing anxiety. He used the metaphor when we were talking of a champagne bottle exploding. He said, I try to ignore this surging energy inside, uh, and I've got a few ignore it strategies, but all that does is just build it up until champagne bottle pops. But like I said, he's been doing something more than just feeling the difficulty. He's also been talking with a spiritual friend and then another, and I'm one of those. And it's about more than, he's discovering, stupid boss. It's also about internal stories, internal judgments, internal beliefs. And so it's been a lot of conversations over a long period of time, closer to a year than to weeks. But then a day comes, and that day comes because he's allowed his malaise to drive internal inquiry. And aha, a moment of insight. Aha, a moment of epiphany. Aha, seeing what had not been seen. Because who knew I have a strategy that has guided me in my life, he told me, to meet or to exceed people's expectations. It's what I do. I meet or I exceed people's expectations. Now, that's a good thing, he told me, right? It's a very good thing. Why would you not want to do that? So, of course, it's a good thing because when I do it, I become a good project manager. When I do it, I become a good friend. When I do it, I become a good husband. When I become a good father. And I have been in my life rewarded for my efforts at meeting or exceeding people's expectations. People end up liking me. People end up liking the work that I do. I get rewarded. I get affirmed. So it's a good thing. Keep it up. And what that does is it then reinforces the cycle, drives it deeper and deeper as a motivating part of my life. So I do it. And then I do it again, and then I do it again, and again, and again. But he told me what I hadn't been doing is to explore what's actually going on under the hood. What I hadn't really done is look very closely at that meet or exceed expectation instinct that I carry around in my guts. Because if I had, I would have seen, you know what's driving my exceed expectations strategy? It's not a noble desire to do good in the world, no. It's a strategy to avoid a deep, although vague, unspecific, sometimes unnamed sense that there's something wrong with me. 
there's something wrong with me. I'm actually avoiding that thought by meeting or exceeding expectations. So I carry this inner voice around inside of myself telling me I am not this or I am not that. I am not capable enough or I am not good enough or I'm not virtuous enough or I'm not smart enough or I am not enough. Now, he said, when I look at that inner voice, it's pretty obvious it's not true, even to me. Because I've lived by this strategy of meeting or exceeding people's expectations, and so I am pretty good at stuff. I'm a good guy. I do good work. I love my people well. But having never done the work of looking under the hood to see what it is that drives me, I never saw how unreasonable my expectations can get. And I probably never would have had not the pressure and the malaise and the accumulated and accumulated and accumulated stuff and the wearing down and the wearing down and the wearing down. Had that not happened, I might never have. So I got ready, unbeknownst even to myself, to question my unquestionable belief, to challenge my unchallengeable strategy. Now, let me pause his story for a moment and insert this observation that nobody thinks that internal dissonance, especially internal dissonance that lasts over a long period of time, nobody thinks that's a good thing. Nobody gravitates to that. Nobody thinks that the idea of being worn down and worn down and worn down and having accumulated pressure and accumulated pressure and accumulated pressure, nobody thinks that's a good thing. In fact, we do everything we can to avoid it. We do everything we can to make it stop. We do everything we can to get away from it. So, this young man made the decision to get away from it. He's trying to find a job, but also to move toward it and to look into it, to look for it. And in the process of moving that direction, he kind of precipitated an early midlife crisis, which is why I'm telling you his story. So back to his story. So he told me, on this side of seeing my own interior mechanics of what's driving my meet or exceed expectations, I, had, I found it hard to believe on this side looking back that I actually thought those thoughts. I find it hard to believe looking back that I actually felt those feelings because when I look at them, they're pretty irrational. The degree of expectation meeting that I had imposed upon myself is unmanageable, it's unreasonable. But it didn't matter that it wasn't a reasonable expectation. It was an interior driving force that I must rise to meeting it. Exhaust myself, wear myself down, I must rise to meeting it. But even worse, he said, a lot of times I wasn't even driven by other people's expectations. What I would do is take some expectation in my own head, put it into their head, and then impose it on myself. And they weren't even real expectations. But again, it didn't matter because I had never looked under the hood. Had I done that, I probably could easily have disputed those expectations, but I never saw them to dispute them. I just followed them to their exhausting, almost debilitating conclusions. And so I wasn't sleeping. 
And so I was blowing up at people that I love. And so I did have stabbing anxiety. And so I was dragging myself out of bed every morning and dragging myself back to work. And then coming home exhausted at the end of the day, I was experiencing a whole lot of misery, all driven by what goes on under the hood. Unexplored, who knew, irrational life strategy. Until saw the light and he said I can't believe how much difference it makes even in this short amount of time how I see and how I perceive differently how much difference a different story makes now he said it is true I'm good at meeting or exceeding people's expectations it's a capacity I have it's a gift I have I am good at work and I am good at home but that ability It's not the only way to be a good version of me. It's not the only good that there is. It's not only, I am not only good when I do that good thing. It is not required of me in order to be an acceptable human being. That's what it was before. It was a requirement to be an acceptable human being. And it's not that helpful when I use that strategy to avoid some interior shame. There's better ways to handle shame, much better just to see those shame thoughts for what they are, thoughts. Pretty ingrained habit thoughts, pretty stuck in their thoughts, thoughts that I think a lot, but they're just thoughts. And they're just a much better way to challenge that than to try and prove their wrongness by meeting or exceeding unreasonable expectations. Now here's the thing, he said, my boss is a jerk, and that's a problem, and that problem needs solving. But now that I realize what's going on inside of me, his jerkiness is a much smaller percentage of my trouble than I realized. A bigger percentage comes from my own interior world and the way I've been responding to his jerkiness. My unseen but perpetually present guilt and shame that's driving my enslavement to meeting or exceeding expectations, even if they're not real, that's been where my pain has come from. So teach me and teach us to number our days that we may gain hearts of wisdom. So in dwelling divine, may we be increasingly free of those driving compulsions. May we be increasingly free of that false version of self. And may we be increasingly free of the demands of those ego strategies. Amen. Next week, I'll tell you another story. So in a moment, we're going to dismiss you folks on the live stream. And I just saw Sue. She's headed out there. She's going to be ready for the Zoom. I hope you'll participate uh, today. We're doing this pilot project for two weeks to see if uh, it can work. If you join in, it'll work. You can get the Zoom link on our website, and it's late, but if you haven't got the Zoom password yet, I bet if you use the Contact Us button, uh, Jen, I just saw Jen, I bet Jen will look at her phone and respond and send you the password back. All right, if you would, please put your hand on your heart and let us remember as we go that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, they're in us. Sometimes hard to find, but they're there. Beneath all the other ego stuff, they're there. And if you would extend your other hand to our city, let's look for opportunities to share what's already in us with the people that we live 
and work and go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair and heal our worlds. Amen. Oh, and I forgot the offering. And also, let's give online. All right, you all are dismissed. Those of us here, we're going to do a little bit differently today. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well-being of the community, we all contribute online. You'll find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you